This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight's topic is adoption and attachment. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, and it's part of our ongoing series about 21st century families. Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo is the founder and CEO of the Center for Family Connections in Cambridge, Mass., with another office also in New York. She's the author of the book, The Family of Adoption, and she's a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's earned numerous awards, including in 2000, the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Award called Angels in Adoption. She does training and consulting all over the world, and despite her many advanced degrees, she's quite sure that her most valuable credential is her experience as an adopted person who has great love and respect for both her birth and adoptive families. Welcome to Safe Space, Joyce. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, Anne. Tell me a little bit about the work you do, Joyce, and the, and the concerns that you most often see coming up with parents of adopted kids. Well, it's, um, it's a big, big question because there's so much and so many different things. I don't know if, if most people understand the expansiveness of adoption. There are so many different kinds. There's public and private. There's infant and older child. There are sibling sets. There's international, transracial. Uh, so I think there are there are very similar bottom line issues of psychological and emotional uh, things that are a part of the world of adoption for all parties. And then I think there are some very specific things that may come up along the way for some of the more... Um, microcosms of adoption. Uh, but we have parents who come and call all the time, uh, some of them just wanting a little, what I call, 50,000-mile checkup. Uh, there are parents who, you know, th- their children do not have mental illness and there's no terrible problem, but these are parents who are a little concerned do the questions my child is asking, do some of the things they're, they're presenting at school have to do with anything surrounding adoption, or is it developmental, or is it a specific child? So sometimes parents just want a little bit of a, an assessment and an overview, and sometimes they want some resources and things that they could read at this point uh, in time with this child at this developmental stage. Sometimes, you know, it's it very funny recently, uh, a common uh, theme for people calling in to make an appointment to see us is that uh, their child or their young adult may have located a birth family member on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes that's wonderful and very supported by everyone, and it's a good thing. And sometimes it's not such a great thing, and um, it's been done in a way that doesn't have enough protections and uh it can move along in ways that upset everyone. And, uh, you know, sometimes people need a little help reining all that in and, and making sense of it. So there's, there, there are so many different kinds of things that people present with. And, um, you know, I, I, it's funny. We use the word adoption, you know, is this adoption related? But that's such a big word. Most kids never think about adoption, the word. But they do think about who am I, where did I come from, why did my birth parents not keep me, Um, do I have siblings? I mean, they think of things that we as adults can abstractly think about as adoption. But when you ask a child, do you ever think about adoption, the answer is usually no. They don't think of the word. So there's so many different reasons folks call. 
Now, it's so interesting when you say that they don't think of the word, but they might be having feelings about some of the things you listed. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference? Well, you know, and I also think that these days adoptive parents are unbelievably well-educated, and they've done lots of reading, there's lots of materials and things available for resources for them. But in the old days, I think sometimes parents felt a bit, um, I don't know, they felt when someone said there's an adoption problem that it was a problem with them as the adoptive parent. Yes. And um, basically... Most parents are, are good enough parents. They're fine. The Some of the things that children in adoption are grappling with are things that happened before the adoption. We still label that adoption-related, but most kids that come to an adoptive family, um, especially children over the age of three, whether it's domestic or international, have already been physically, sexually abused or neglected, or they wouldn't be in a place where they would be available for adoption. So when you think about that, these are families that are dealing with children that come to them with loss and trauma. And that loss and trauma sometimes presents challenging behaviors and sometimes presents challenging situations that need to be addressed and children that need to have some healing of some of the past experiences. And it, it may have nothing to do with adoption, quote-unquote, nothing since the adoption has hurt this child per se, but the child is part of adoption and the adoptive family and their early history is a part of their whole self. Right. And when you say that, you know, most kids, you know, who are adopted around the age of three have experienced that, uh, just roughly speaking, what percent of adopted kids are adopted at birth and what percent are adopted you know, after they've had some form of, you know, orphanage experience or, you know, removal from the house or something like that? It's very hard to have numbers on on this, especially infant adoptions, because private adoptions, there's no, um, there's no registry per se of those. I, we have public adop- adoption numbers because those children are in care before they're adopted. Um, we have some international numbers because those kids come into the country, either having been adopted or, or about to be adopted. Um, but the and we now have the Hague Convention, so there are certain regulations and things that have to be followed internationally. But infant adoption is uh, a little bit looser, and we don't have as much information about it. So the numbers are not clear. But a sense of the numbers would tell us that these days, and you can you can look up on childwelfareleagueofamerica.org and um, Department of Health and Human Services and get some numbers for sure. Um, whether they're accurate or not, I, d- I don't know. But um, more and more these days, the adoptions are of slightly older children because in this culture since the 70s, 80s, uh, it's possible to be a single parent. It's possible to have uh, lots of supports around that. Um, infants are not always placed for adoption. People have different choices about uh, pregnancies. And so, um, you know, there aren't as many infant adoptions as there were at one point in time. And there are certainly older children whose parents were not able to keep them safe. And for many reasons in the world, uh, poverty, war, domestic violence, uh, addictions, there could be many reasons that led to a child not being able to be kept safe in their birth family and so becoming available for adoption. And then there are, there are situations, certainly in the world and in this country, where there's some trafficking of children. 
Um, it's you know, and that's it's so important that we make sure that adoptions are done ethically and that everyone involved is taken care of in the right way. Right. So it's very sobering in a way. What you're saying is that the demographics of adoption have really changed since there are now so many more options and that in fact maybe that the kids who get adopted nowadays may really have suffered more in that in that space where they're in care as you put it i think that's absolutely true i mean there's at the bottom line of even an infant adoption that's a very open juno movie kind of adoption is that there is loss but in if you add to that any of the traumas that might have happened to a child along the way and the the additional losses if they were moved and moved again from orphanages to foster homes to more foster homes before they got to their permanent family, um, then there are additional losses and additional traumas. And kids are resilient. It doesn't, this is not a sentence for mental illness or terrible problems, but it is important for professionals and families to know Uh, that this is something that needs to be addressed, that children need um, support and healing, that families need support to be able to transition these children into their families and to help them to unlearn some learned behaviors that may not be in their best interest. So I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the losses that that happen with adoption in the absence of those kind of traumatic experiences. So in this kind of ideal Juno type. Adoption. Um, you know, when I've heard you speak before, I'm, I'm going to read a quote of what you said, which was, Adoption doesn't fix anything, not the losses of the child, nor the losses of the parent. And so I want to start with the losses of the child. For, you know, for a baby that gets adopted right there at birth, what are those losses and how, because, you know, for a lot of people, we think, well, the child doesn't remember that. How could it affect them? And I'd love to hear, how does it affect them? Well, what we know now is that um, from pre- and perinatal psychologists is that um, children are affected by everything. They're affected in utero, and they um, they do, they feel and hear their senses are taking things in in various ways, that if there is uh, trauma that a pregnant woman experiences, her child uh, may have some feelings as related to that. So their children do come with some pretty high sensitivity to what's going on around them. They certainly don't have the intellectual capacity or the words. I mean, it's preverbal, precognitive in many instances, but sensitively it is there. And so uh, kids are losing things in the process of adoption. They're losing the sounds, the feels, the connection that they had uh, in utero and with the person who who they would then have been parented by. And that is not the end of the world. For centuries, children have not been cared for by the parent who gave birth to them. Um, but I think that the way it happens and the trauma and transition around it certainly impacts the, the loss. And over time, the disposition and personality of the child and how they make sense of what they're learning about adoption uh, impacts them. Uh, Most people believe and and understand that it's important to tell children as early as possible about adoption and that they're adopted. In the old days, people used to say, no, why would you tell a small child? You should wait till they're old enough to really understand it. But by the time they're old enough to really understand it, everyone in the neighborhood and all their distant cousins have 
said things to them, and uh, they've been told not by the people who love them most, but by other people, maybe in not a nice way. Is that the so, primary reason to tell them early, so that they hear it from you? It, in a... And so it is. It's, they need to hear it in the kindest way from the persons who love them the most, and to hear, and they need to make sense of it as a positive thing and as an okay thing. Um, it's, so if, if they hear, uh, I've had clients over the years who their fourth grade teacher who was very mean kept them after school and said, no wonder you're so stupid, your birth mom. I mean, you know, some horrible things. Horrible. That, and that's the way they would find out that they weren't the child of their parents. And mm. I think that, you know, the way you're told and how you continue to make sense of that also builds a, 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 an identity and an understanding that helps you to create your own narrative. And so those things are incredibly important, and there are losses associated with them. There's a loss of feeling like you're in a normal, quote-unquote, family, um, mm. because the people around you look like their family and, and, you know, came into their family through birth. And, uh, you know, there are many instances where that's not true. Kids live in much more diverse places. But... For, for the most part, there's a loss around that. There's a loss of any siblings you might have had before or after. There's a loss of, um, you know, sometimes your religion, your culture, your ethnicity, different kinds of things. Um, right. So there are lots of losses. That, and again, I, I think it's very important that we acknowledge the losses. I don't, I don't like to talk about this and have people think, oh, what a downer. This is awful. Now, why are we even doing this? Well, you know, in the old days, we didn't talk at all about anyone's losses. And what happened was the child had to hold everyone's losses because no one was dealing with them. So the feelings that children are like sponges for emotions, and they would hold everything. Because the birth parents have losses that they need to be able to make sense of and deal with on their own. The adoptive parents, especially if they've gone through infertility, have had serious losses, sad and difficult things that they have gone through on their way to becoming a family. And, you know, adoption doesn't fix infertility. There's still a loss at not seeing the child you would have given birth to. And, and that's a legitimate and real loss. So everyone involved has had their losses. And if we ignore all of those losses, we can't really enjoy the joy that is part of this whole newly created family. I think that if we don't acknowledge those losses, again, the child holds them all. Well, the paradox, it seems to me, is if we can hold and acknowledge the losses, it allows for the joy. Absolutely. Yeah, so I don't think it has to be a downer so much as it actually allows for the goodness that's there to really be full. Absolutely. You know, and I think that a lot of these really serious diagnoses that we hear about kids, I'll tell you a little story. Um, There's a woman that I know who's from Italy, and uh, she used to come to all of our open adoption conferences because in Italy that was just not something that happened. People didn't believe you needed to be open about adoption or you needed to know anything. And she and her husband had adopted two Russian children. And the daughter who they adopted was um, quite a challenging child. And they brought her to different specialists in Italy. And they all decided across the board that she had reactive attachment disorder and that this was very serious. And they wanted to give her dire medications that really weren't used for children, but they seemed to think she would need these. 
and and my friend felt like this wasn't right, so she did her own research and she came and learned more about openness and she heard that it was important sometimes for kids to go back to the place where they were from. And so she took her daughter on a trip to Russia and they went to the orphanage where she had been and one of the people at the orphanage remembered her and that was really important to her. Mm-hmm. And they took her and her mom to the gravesite of her birth mother. And they went to the gravesite and she and her daughter knelt there and prayed and um it was very powerful. They both cried. And later the mom uh ordered a headstone and had it placed on the grave. And it was very interesting, within several weeks of returning to Italy, this child miraculously no longer had reactive attachment disorder. And I'm not saying that it should happen every time, but really that wasn't the diagnosis. This child had such loss and trauma, and she was so loyal to her deceased mother that she couldn't take in another mother. She could not allow this family to mean anything to her because she had such losses and she had such loyalty. And as soon as she and her mom joined together to honor her other mother and to accept her in a certain way, she didn't have to fight with her anymore. And she could be, she could claim this family as her own in a way that she hadn't up until that point. And it doesn't always happen that obviously and that smoothly, but this is a very real story. And I think it's important that we realize how much children are dealing with when they're trying to make sense. You can imagine she was taken from this very stark uh, Russian orphanage where even the caregivers are pretty deprived themselves, so they're not giving a lot to the children. And she was brought to this warm, lovely Tuscan village to this fabulous family. And, you know, it's like being in outer space. How do you adjust to that and make sense of your new life when you still are dealing with some of the trauma and tragedy and loss of your old life? This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo about adoption. Joyce, I found that story so beautiful, so moving, and I do want to ask you more about loyalty. I understand that so often um, adoptive kids do feel this divided loyalty, a loyalty to their birth mother that they feel it would somehow be a betrayal to their adoptive mother to speak of, and vice versa. In the story you told, you know, it was hard to even make room for the adoptive mother given the loyalty. And Are there other ways that um, adoptive parents can help uh, acknowledge this loyalty and not be threatened by it because it does seem that there can be this this there's feeling of threat that absolutely absolutely and I think it's very normal when you are first adopting a child and you've waited so long to have your family or to enlarge your family it's very normal to sort of want everything to be tucked in and and not to be too expansive or open about anything. I, I think that's so human. <laughs> but I do think that after you've claimed this child and you feel in your heart of hearts that this is your child, there's room to expand a little and to think about things a little bit differently. When we work with adoptive families, we um, at our clinic we always do a three-generation genogram when the intake is done. 
and we look at patterns in families and we look at what's going on and we draw this genogram and use the genogram in our first consultation with that family. Um, and I think it's important to see on that page, you will see, and I'll just use a traditional family, but it could be any kind of family. You'll see the mom and her family of origin. You'll see the dad or the other mom and their family of origin. And then you'll see the child or children by adoption. If there are children by birth, they'll be on there. Um, but then the children by adoption will be on there, but you also draw their birth family, even if you know nothing about them. As far as I know, you still have to have a birth mother and a birth father to right. be created. So we draw a circle and a square. Circles are women and squares are men. And if we know more about that family, we draw more about them on the picture. But what we show the family and the kids is that when you marry someone, you inherit in-laws. And whether you like them or not, they're part of your family because you love your partner. And so you end up with this larger family. And some of them may live millions of miles away, and you may only see them once every 10 years at a wedding. And some of them may live around the corner, and you may wish you only saw them <laughs> once every 10 years at a wedding. Um, families are families, whether they're by birth or by adoption, and in-laws are in-laws. And, so, and, and families need to learn to share. There's a lot going on in the family of origin of, the, of one parent when you have to do the first Thanksgiving at the other at your spouse's house and there's feelings of loss. People go through this all the time. There's jealousy, there's fear, there's fear of loss. What if you like them better than us? Why are you spending time with them? I mean, we go through this with every little aspect of family in different ways. And I think that when you understand what we go through with in-laws and how they're unrelated people who become related through marriage, when you adopt a child, their family, their birth family, is like in-laws. You adopt them, they become extended family, whether you know them or not, whether they're in China and your chances of meeting them are not very good in the next 10 years, or whether they're down the street and it's an open adoption and you see them four times a year. They're part of your child, so they're part of your extended family. And I think when you begin to think of the family extending in that way, um, it, it's much better for children because they feel they don't have to compartmentalize and separate. They feel like, oh, yeah, my aunt in California is sort of like my birth mother because I like the idea of her and I think about her a lot, but I don't get to see her very often. And I think, uh, you know, however you can help kids to make sense of things and to normalize them, then they feel more normal. It's such a striking story. I mean, it feels so different to me than how I think I've understood adoption before, which is sort of like the birth parents are really out of the picture and kind of in a desirably out of the picture sort of a way. And I hear you saying something far more inclusive, far more embracing of the reality that these people do exist. They do have feelings about the child. Your child does have feelings about them. And it doesn't have to be dangerous. No. No. And you know, it's interesting. Um, children don't get confused. Adults professional parents <laughs> always think that children will be confused. How are they going to make sense of all of these things? You know, I grew up adopted. I know when you ask me about my mom, I'm talking about my mom, who was my mom every single day of my life. And there's nothing that would take that away. She, you know, she's my mom. Uh, my birth mother, I always called by her first name. I met her when I was a young adult. And she is a wonderful person. 
but she's not my mom. She's mm-hmm. my birth mother. She'll always be my birth mother, and it's a very important place in my life. But my mom's my mom. And there's everyone that I've ever worked with, unless they had a terrible relationship with one or the other set of these parents, that is their feeling. It's very clear to them. And I think that became very clear to Dasha, the Russian child that I was talking about. She was not able to accept her mom as her mom. And then when she did, she did. And that, that Anna had taken care of her every day since she had adopted her, had done all these things, had taken her back, was constantly trying to figure out how to do whatever was best and whatever would heal her losses. And she knows who her mom is, and she still has a mom that she misses and who's deceased and who she loves. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more about reunions. You began this interview talking about, you know, people finding a birth family member through Facebook. And I know because you write about it and you speak about it that you, you know, you know your own birth mother. And it sounds like you're not confused at all about who's who. But tell me a little bit your story of how you decided to look for her, whether you had to encounter legal roadblocks, how you found her, and then kind of what your hopes were for that reunion. I can imagine there was so much there before it happened. Well, first of all, I think it's really important to take everything in a historical context. Okay. And I was, a, I was a, because really things change, and they change from country to country. Today in Korea, there are millions of open adoptions. People find their birth parents every day on, on return trips, and there are open adoptions from the beginning. And that would never have happened 15 years ago. So, uh, you know, and here in this country, there most public adoptions, there's a requirement that the adoption be open. There are open adoption laws in most states. And when a child is finalized, an older child who's placed through the state, there's almost always an arrangement and an agreement for some kind of openness. So things are very different depending on what time in in history you're talking about. So I'm I'm adopted in 1946 at the end of World War II, and there are millions of babies. They're just everywhere. And they um, place them. They match you to your family. My birth family and my adoptive family are both Irish Catholic. I wrote a poem once called Related to Myself. I travel mm-hmm. a lot to Ireland, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure those all those families are related at some point. It's, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's just, you know, it was a very different thing back then. I also think when you work with a lot of kids, you know right away some kids are born searchers. They're, they're asking questions from the minute they can talk, and they're never going to stop asking questions. And when you have a born searcher, you have to figure out how you're going to tell them things because they are going to go to the ends of the earth to find out. And I was one of those born searchers. Mm -hmm. So I would sit at the... My parents told me I was adopted once. Now, you can't tell a child to get your coat on once. You have to say it at least 14 times. So you can't explain something as complicated as adoption once. But in the 50s, you didn't really talk to kids. So my parents were like every other parent. They just mentioned it. Oh, by the way, you're adopted, you know. And but meanwhile, I was extremely interested in this, and I would stare at my parents and at my sister and say, "How come Judy looks sort of like Dad, but I don't?" Oh, it's because I'm adopted. And then I thought she wasn't adopted, but she was also adopted, but from a different family. So I was completely studying this from the time I was three. Yes. And, you know, I think when you get a kid who's like that, you absolutely 
can't just go away and ignore it. They're not going to let up for a minute. So I always wanted to know, always. And when I was, I don't know, I was probably 19 or 20, maybe a little older, when a slightly older friend of mine went to law school, and I said, oh, good, now you can tell me how I find my birth mother. And she said, they don't teach us that in law school. (laughs) And I said, well, they must research it. Find out what do I have to do. So finally she said to me, you have to go and ask a judge for permission. The records are locked and sealed, and so the only way you could do it is to ask a judge. So I went before a judge and asked, and she said, yeah, go ahead. Here are the records. So I got my records pretty easily. Now, this is a very dramatically simple story because that isn't how it happens for most people. But I was able to get the records, and then I was able to do very good research, and I located my birth mother, and I sent a letter, and it was a very carefully written letter because I did not want to interrupt her life. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I simply wanted to know if she would answer some questions and if she would meet me. So all I did was say, I haven't seen you since August 20th, 1946. Let's do lunch. Yeah, and that was the whole letter? It's something that simple because oh. if anyone else read it, it, it wasn't at all weird. It was just someone from the past inviting her to lunch. I see. So you kept her privacy in case I it did. had been. And wow. I thought that was extremely important. And um, what happened is she received that letter the day that her mother was buried. Oh. And she went to the funeral and she went to the graveyard and then she came home and they were having a little reception at the house and she snuck away from everyone to look at her mail and there were a bunch of bills in my letter. And she said that it was so shocking to her because her mother was the one who made her give me up for adoption. Oh, my goodness. And her mother went away and I appeared in the same two-hour span. You know, it was just Mm. very weird. So uh, the stories, there are many, many stories like this. It's uh, it's just funny, these sort of eerie coincidences. Joyce, you know what I hate to tell you? I'm so wrapped up in your story, I didn't pay attention to the time. Uh We're going to have to end. That's good. (laughs) Which is such a powerful story, but it was giving me goosebumps. Thank you so much for sharing oh, that. And there's so much more I want to know about it. I'm sure others do too. But I, I'm going to just have to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. It's been such a You're pleasure. You're entirely welcome. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you can let people know how to be in touch if they have further questions. Well, is there, a, yes, why don't you give me, what is your website? The website is www.kinect.org. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo. Thank you, Anne. This is Dr. Ann on WMPG at Safe Space, and I've been talking to Dr. Joyce McGuire-Pavo about adoption and attachment. Again, she's the CEO of the Center for Family Connections in Cambridge and New York City. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound and Maurice Leonard for the music. Please go to the website to get a full edition of this show if you'd like to pass it on to anyone. We're at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also visit us and like us on Facebook. And write a comment. Coming up next is Watchdog.